So uh, this week, our confidence was shaken a little bit, right? In, in, in the Portland water supply. I take it that the conversation about whether or not our reservoir should be covered is over. Mm. Uh, okay, so I'm just real quick, just informal survey. This is not my notes, informal survey. I want to know uh, who are the buyers and who are the boilers, right? All right, so if, if, if you went out and bought water, raise, raise your hand. I just want to get a feel for our congregation. All right, now if you went out, went home and boiled a bunch of water, raise your hand. Okay, so we're a boiling congregation. That's, that's very clear. We're, we're, we're boilers, not buyers. What's that? We're cheap. <laughs> All right. You know, it was thinking about our loss of confidence there briefly in our water supply that got me thinking about confidence in general uh, this week. Uh, one of the places where this question of confidence, not in relation to water, but confidence in general has come up, is, is the workforce. I don't know if you've been paying attention to what's, what's going on out there, but th- these days, fully half of the American workforce uh, are women. Half of workers in the United States, outside the home, are women. And yet, the, the reality is, uh, women are woefully underrepresented in, in areas of higher management, uh, in, in areas of the, the workforce, workforce that carry with it significant areas of responsibility. And so, if you've been paying attention, there's been this national conversation going on about why is that? Why are, are women, even though they're out there in the workforce, why, why are they underrepresented in areas of, of leadership in the workforce? Lots of discussion going on about that. What can be done? What, what, what can change it? Lots of opinions out there. But one idea that's been given a lot of press lately is the importance of confidence when it comes to women in the workplace. Now, not the issue of confidence like the issue we had this week of of whether or not we're going to be confident in our water supply. There were some objective things wrong with the water, and so, of course, we were not confident in it. That apparently is not the issue with women in the workplace. Study after study has been done, and it, it appears that men have confidence. They, they've got it. And women, on the whole, don't have it. And that is the case regardless of their actual competence in what it is they're doing. In fact, often the case, women in the workplace who are more competent at their job than the men around them, nevertheless regularly display less confidence in their ability to do their job. And that difference, that difference in confidence, that difference in attitude, apparently matters. Objectively, statistically, when, when, when people try to answer this question, why aren't there more women involved in, in higher levels of management in the workplace? Study after study has shown that women are less likely to seek promotions. They are less likely to attempt difficult projects or competitive careers. They are more likely than the men around them to blame themselves when things go wrong. And they are more likely than the men around them to give credit to others when things go well, even when they went well because of them. As the authors of the cover story of the Atlantic Monthly put it, uh, uh, I guess last month, the cover story last month in the Atlantic, as they put it, success, it turns out, correlates just as closely with confidence as it does with competence. So what's to be done? Well, Sheryl Sandberg, Facebook's COO, has told women to lean in. Be confident. Get engaged. Jill Abramson, the recently fired executive editor of the New York Times, told the graduating class at Wake Forest University just a few weeks ago that what really matters is resilience and attitude. To a certain extent, I think the Apostle John would agree. 
as he wraps up his letter, we're, we're, we're closing out our series in 1 John uh, this morning. As, as he wraps up his letter, he knows that it's not just the objective truths of Christianity that are important, though they are extremely important. It's also our subjective confidence in those truths that changes how we live. Unlike today's pundits and career strategists, though, John doesn't want to boost our confidence in ourselves. He doesn't want to boost our self-confidence. He wants our confidence where it belongs. He wants it in Jesus Christ. His confidence matters. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. If if you're using one of the Bibles we provided, that's found on page 1,903. 1,903, the Bibles that you find in the pews and chairs around you. 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to read a beginning in verse 13 all the way to the end of the chapter, to the end of the letter. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin. And there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe. And the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God. And that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true even in his Son Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, here is the way John wraps up his whole letter. These are his concluding remarks. And and in some ways, uh, his his main application points, his main takeaways for the the letter as a whole. He finally gets to, why does all this matter? What, what, What should you do with it? And if I could, if I could sum it up, give you a, a single sentence that summarizes what's going on in these three paragraphs, it would be simply this. We can be confident for ourselves and each other. We can be confident for ourselves and each other because we are confident in Jesus Christ. Confident for ourselves and each other because we're confident in Jesus Christ. And I, and I want to unpack that, right? Uh, in, in three steps, confident for ourselves, which we see there in verses 13 through 15, confident for each other, verses 16 and 17, and confident in Jesus Christ, verses 18 to 21. And as we look at this, I, I simply want you to be reflecting in your own lives, where is your confidence? And should it be where it is? Let's start with our confidence for ourselves. Confidence for ourselves. Look at verse 13 again. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. All right, finally, right here at the end of the letter... John tells us explicitly and clearly why he wrote the letter in the first place. Of course, we haven't been wondering. It's been clear all the way along. But but he says it there in verse 13. The purpose of this letter is so that we who have expressed faith in Christ may know with confidence that we have eternal life. That's why he wrote. He wants us to have confidence that in Christ we have eternal life. And, and all along the way, he's pointed out that, that we know this by observing our own lives and finding in our own lives three sort of key signs of the new birth. 
obedience to God's command, love for one another, and belief that Jesus is God, come in the flesh, crucified for us. Those are the, the three marks of genuine Christianity that he's been cycling through several times. This, this is why he wrote that we would know we have eternal life and we know we have it because we see the signs of it in our lives. And this, this is how we know. This is how we find confidence for ourselves. And, and this confidence, John says, matters. Because the Christian who's confident that he or she has eternal life actually begins to live differently. We, we, we live boldly. Look at verse 14. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This, this is John's first big point of application in the whole letter. This is his first big takeaway. If you know that God has given you life, not, not just any life, but, but his life, then you're going to talk to God. You're not going to hold him at arm's length. You're, you're actually going to approach him. You're going you're to talk to him. Not, you're not just going to talk to him. You're going to ask things from him. You're not going to pussyfoot around. You're not going to hem and haw. You're not going to try and kind of box him in and manipulate him into giving you what you want. No, you're, you're just going to walk right into his presence and you are going to boldly ask for things and so boldly live. But I don't want you to, to misunderstand that the kind of confidence that's going on here that John's talking about. You're, you're not an employee who screwed up his courage and is now marching into the boss's office to ask for a raise. It's not that kind of confidence. Now you're, you're, you're like, you're like a child who, who's, who's meeting his dad at the front door when he comes home from work, storybook in hand, right? That's, that's the way my James, my five-year-old meets me many, many, uh, weekdays. I walk through the door, he sees me, he runs straight to this one, one table where we keep all these children's books and he grabs them and he actually doesn't even need, even need to say anything. He just walks up to me. With, with, with the book, right? He's, he's bold. He's confident. Now, what John's talking about is even better than that. Because my experience, and maybe this is your experience as well, my experience when I come home is often, Dad, 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 look at this. Look what I did. Dad, come do this with me. Dad, let me talk to you about this. Dad, can I have? And... And unfortunately for my kids, because there's nothing wrong with any of that that they're doing, but unfortunately for my kids, their experience is oftentimes that a tired dad has come home. A dad who has been dealing with people's requests all day long. And I kind of just want to decompress. And I just want to disengage. And I, and I don't always receive those requests as I ought. Now that's my sin. But it's never God's sin. It's never God's sin. He's never tired after a long day's work. He never brushes his children off. He's never irritated at our request. John says he hears us. And because he hears us, he gives us what we ask. And, and, and he delights to give us what we ask. It's, it's not grudging. It's, it's his joy. So, so some of you are sitting here this morning and you struggle with this idea of God as a father who delights to hear from you. And who delights to answer your prayers. And, and, and that's in part because that wasn't your dad. Friends, I want to I encourage you. Don't judge God by your dad's failures. Understand that even in your dad's failures, your dad is pointing to someone better, a father who never fails. And, and in your dad's strengths and in your dad's successes, he's pointing to someone better, someone who loves and always hears. That's who God is. And that's the relationship that we have. That's the, the confidence that we have with God. If we, if we have his life in us, 
we know that he hears us. We know that he delights when we bring our requests to him. We know that he delights to answer our prayers. Now, now John is quick, though, and I'm sure you notice this. John is quick to point out that this does not mean that God is our personal ATM machine, which is sometimes the way teenagers treat their parents. You know, I, I get it. And it's sometimes the way we treat God. But, but John's clear. That's, that's not what he's talking about. God's life in us brings us to him. God's life in us conforms us to him, not the other way around. It doesn't bring God to us. It doesn't, it doesn't conform God to our desires. John says that, that having God's life in us is going to lead us to ask, yes, but to ask according to his will. You see that phrase there in verse 14? If we ask anything according to his will. That is to say, we're going to ask, we're going to ask boldly. But we're going to ask according to God's life in us, according to God's character, according to God's purposes, which are already at work in us through the life that he's given us. This is why we know he hears us. This is why we know he answers our prayers. When we ask according to his will, he hears in our requests an echo of himself. Right? He, he hears in our voices an echo of his voice, of his perfect wisdom, of his perfect will. Do you know what God's will is? You're going to have to know what God's will is, of course, in order to ask according to God's will. Do, do you know what God's will is? I did a quick search this week on that on that phrase, just God's will in, in the New Testament. This is not exhaustive by any means, but, but here's what I found. God's will is that his son be glorified. God's will is that we be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. God's will is that the gospel be preached around the world and in our neighborhoods and in our families. God's will is that his grace be shown, be seen to be sufficient in the midst of our weakness. God's will is that we would be holy. God's will is that we would be filled with the spirit, that, that we would edify and encourage one another. That we would be always thankful. God's will is that we would work in all of our work as unto the Lord and not as unto men. God's will is that we would persevere in faith and love and obedience. God's will is that our good works would silence our detractors and give glory to him. Friends, that's what God's will is, as the New Testament talks about it, at least some of it. Are those the sorts of things that you find yourself asking God for boldly? Are those the sorts of things that, that fill up and inhabit your prayers? I think it's really interesting that in the New Testament, God's will rarely has to do with the specifics of, of which job we should take but is very much all about how we work on the job that we have. God's will actually seems to have very little to do with the specifics of who you marry, other than the fact that you need to marry a Christian if you're a Christian. But God's will is very much about how you love and serve the spouse that you have. God's will has very little to say, it seems, about where you live. But it has a lot to say about how you live, where you live. You know, when, when we know God and we are consumed with his will, we stop praying like God is our own personal celestial ATM machine for our personal desires. And we start praying boldly. We start praying, honestly, more like the Apostle Paul. Paul, when you read his prayers in the New Testament, Paul prayed for the advance of the gospel. Paul prayed for opportunity in his life 
to demonstrate the power and the truth of the gospel. He prayed that that other Christians would grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. He prayed that he would persevere in trials and sufferings and that we would persevere in trials and sufferings. He prayed that we would be filled with the spirit and he prayed that we would keep in step with the spirit. He prayed for wisdom. He prayed for faith. Brothers and sisters, is this what your prayers sound like? You see, bold asking leads to bold living. It leads to giving your life away for the sake of Jesus. It it, it leads to radical acts of love and service. If you are confident, I mean really confident, that you have eternal life, and that that cannot be taken away from you. That, that, that no matter what happens to you in this life, you're safe. You're secure. You have the life of God in you, a life that will not end. If you are confident of that, brothers and sisters, this is what your prayers will sound like. Because you know your Father's will. And you know that He will give these things to you if you ask for them. And frankly, You want them. You want them more and more. Now, maybe this is a new idea for you. Maybe as as a believer, maybe you've grown up in the church. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long, long time. But when you think about asking God for things, your, your list has always been actually pretty narrow, pretty small, focused on immediate needs. And I don't mean to say we should not pray for those things. Jesus taught us to pray for immediate needs. Give us this day our daily bread, right? In the Lord's Prayer, there's an example of us praying for our immediate needs. So we should do that. But but maybe you've never gotten beyond that, right? Maybe you've never gotten beyond praying for your own personal health and the health of your family members and your own particular immediate needs. I want to encourage you. We've got a a book on the bookstall, and I want to encourage you to buy it and read it. It's called A Call to Spiritual Reformation. A Call to Spiritual Reformation. Don Carson wrote it, and in it, he basically walks you through all the prayers of Paul, the Apostle Paul. And I guarantee you, it will change your prayer life. It will change the way you think about walking into God's presence and what you ask for. You won't stop asking for daily necessities. Oh, but you'll start asking for so much more. And friends, when we start asking for so much more, when we start asking for the advance of God's kingdom, when we start asking for perseverance in trials, when we start praying for one another that this church would grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, friends, God hears those prayers. He hears them. And we know that whatever we ask according to his will, he gives. So watch out. You start praying like this. And things are going to change. They're changing your life. They're going to change in our life together. We have confidence for ourselves. But that's not all we have confidence for. John tells us that because of the eternal life that God has given us, we have confidence for each other. Not just for ourselves, but we have confidence for each other. Look there in verse 16. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. So, you know, he's in his application section here of of his letter, and and he started with this application of praying for ourselves and boldly asking that we might boldly live. And so it, it actually kind of makes sense that he seamlessly moves from praying for ourselves to praying for one another. I mean, that makes sense in light of the letter as a whole, right? Because one of the things these emphasize is that if you're a believer, you're going to love other believers. We love one another. And, and what greater way can we love one another than by praying for one another, interceding for each other? But here John focuses not just on intercession in general. He actually focuses in on a particular kind of intercession, praying for one another when we are caught And entangled in sin. John says that we should. Literally actually says that we will. We we just will. Pray. When we see a brother caught in sin. We will pray. And God will hear that prayer. God will answer that prayer. God will give him life. 
You see what's going on there? John is confident that if, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, if you've been born again, then God's love is at work in you. And, and so because his love is, is at work in you, you're going to pray for your brothers and sisters when, when they sin. He, he, he's, he just knows that's going to be your response. When, when someone has sinned against you, or maybe someone that you know, and I, and I think that's what's in view here, because he says, when you see someone sin, when you see a brother sin, how are you going to see it? Unless in some way or another it was directed against you or people around you. So this is personal. And John knows that your response is going to be prayer. Not gossip. Not condemnation. Not resentment. Not avoidance. But prayer. Prayer for repentance. Prayer for forgiveness that leads to life. And we know, here's the confidence part, we know that the life of God is in our brothers and sisters, even when they sin. The life of God is already in them. And so we are confident that God's going to answer our prayer. That he will give them a repentance that leads to life. Now I think... If you're anything like me, and you might be, I think that quite often when we see sin in a brother's life, especially when that sin has been directed against us, we try to be the Holy Spirit rather than plead with the Holy Spirit. John doesn't want us to be the Holy Spirit. He wants us to plead with the Holy Spirit. But I... I would much rather be the Holy Spirit. I want to be the agent in your life that brings conviction of sin. Especially when you've sinned against me. Right? I, I, I want to, to, to convince you. I, I want to, to make sure that you change. And so what do I do? Well, we all do this stuff. We, we, we condemn each other. We harangue each other. Or we, we begin to give the cold shoulder to each other, right? We avoid each other. We punish each other. And then we gossip about each other, which is even worse. Now, now I want to be really clear. I want to be really clear here. There is a place for confrontation and rebuke. When someone sins against you, there is a place for going to the person who sinned against you and confronting them with their sin. Jesus teaches us how to do that in Matthew chapter 18. And so John is not setting aside Matthew chapter 18. He's basically saying, yep, but what about prayer? What about prayer? Because, you see, the Holy Spirit is actually really good at his job. He really doesn't need us to be him. He likes being him. And he's really good at what he does. He's actually far better at it than us. And so John says, do, do, do you pray for your brother or sister before you confront them? Because, of course, what we really need is the Holy Spirit to work. And, and having confronted, do you continue to pray that, that the Holy Spirit would use your words or use the scriptures and bring conviction of sin and bring repentance and change, and so bring life. I, I, think, I think too many of us are more confident in the power of our words than we are confident in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and you can tell by how little we pray about these things. This was really brought home to me. The power of prayer to effect change in someone's life was really powerfully brought home to me over a small issue, but nevertheless, it made a big impact uh, about, about, about 10 years ago, about 14 years into uh, our marriage. Adrian and I have been married 14 years. So, so, so <clears throat> couples who find that you're uh, discouraged, that you're still struggling, you know, five or, 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 or eight years into marriage, here's a story from 14 years into marriage, all right? Um, I had this habit of leaving bits of trash all over my wife's dresser. 
Now, it's not a, that's not, you know, there are worse things you could do. There are worse habits. But nevertheless, I did. I mean, you know, and not just occasionally, every day, every single day, I had this habit of just like leaving bits of trash on her dresser. And I think because it was daily, this this got to be irritating to my wife. This got to be frustrating to my wife. Many of the women are nodding as if you can relate to this. Now, pretty early on, Adrian confronted me with what I was doing. Maybe at first thinking I wasn't even aware. And by the way, I talked to Adrian about this ahead of time. So this is okay, right? Besides, she's the hero in this story. Well, God's the hero, but she's the good guy in this story. Um, She confronts me, maybe thinking I'm not aware, but I was aware. (laughs) And I was defensive. I said, what's the big deal? Okay, I'm sorry. But I mean, really, what's the big deal? You should just pick it up and throw it away if if it's bothering you so much. Yes, that's what I said. (laughs) So she confronts me on this, and and nothing changes. I keep doing it. I keep doing it. I'm, I'm not really trying to be malicious. I'm honestly being extremely thoughtless, extremely uncaring towards my wife. Um, this goes on for years. Finally, the Holy Spirit at work in my wife uh, really lays it on her heart to stop confronting me and to just start praying for me about this. Just praying that that I would see how thoughtless I'm being and that I would care about how thoughtless I'm being and that I would change. And she stopped talking to me about it altogether. You can imagine this was a conversation we were having, oh, if not daily, at least two or three times a week. And the conversation just stopped. And Adrian said about praying. And you know what happened? I don't know how long it took. But I actually became deeply convicted of my sin. God softened my heart. And I realized that this was, oh yeah, it was a small thing. But I was sinning against my wife. I was treating her with disregard. And I needed to change. And I did change. I stopped leaving my bits of trash on her dresser. I would... I would take them off of my, out of my shirt or out of my pockets or whatever, and I would walk across the room, actually into a, to the, the bathroom around the corner, and I would deposit them into the garbage can myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why did that happen? Why did I change? Why did I begin to experience life? Because that's what that is. I was beginning to live. I was beginning to live with God's life at that moment. What happened? My wife prayed for me. She prayed for me in my sin. She patiently prayed. And the Lord changed me. Now, if God can change us on little things, things that we might not even notice, like bits of trash being left where it shouldn't be left, God can change us in anything. God gives life. He gives life in response to our prayers for each other. So brothers and sisters, let's pray. Let's pray for each other. You hear me all the time encouraging you to to pick up an updated copy of our membership directory. We have copies of this at uh, at the information desk. And I know what many of you think. Many of you think, I don't need another copy. I've already got all the phone numbers I need. Friends, This is not so that you know how to call each other. This is so that you'll pray for each other. We've got right on the inside uh, cover of of the directory a guide uh, for how you can use this membership directory as a prayer guide to pray for one another. Just praying for one page each day of the month and you have prayed for the entire congregation, the entire membership of Henson Baptist Church. You think, oh, I don't know some of those people. I don't know what to pray for them. Yes, you do, because you read first John five this week, you know that you could pray for for, you know, 25 people on on a certain page that the Lord would help them see their sin, whatever it is, and repent of it and change from it. And wouldn't you like people to pray that for you? 
Wouldn't you like to know that at least once a month, everybody in this church is praying specifically for you, that you would see your sin and you would see the Savior and that you'd know the power of the gospel even now to change you. Brothers and sisters, let's pray for one another. Now, John has told us that uh, God isn't our ATM machine, back in verse 14. In In this call to pray for one another, he makes another qualification here as well. He says that we can have confidence that God will give life to the brother or sister whose sin does not lead to death. But that he's not talking about the sin that leads to death. What does that mean? After all, doesn't doesn't the New Testament teach us, doesn't Paul say that that the wages of sin, all sin, is death? How how can there be a sin that doesn't lead to death if the wages of sin are death? Doesn't James say that if we keep the whole law but break just one command, we're guilty of the whole and so condemned by the whole? Is, Is John contradicting Paul and James here? Not at all. Because to contradict them, he'd have to contradict himself. John John has just said there in in verse 12 of chapter 5 that that those who are without Christ are already dead in their sins. They they already have death. And back in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, John uh, really affirmed that with Christ... We have an advocate for the Father. That with Christ, we have a sacrifice that is sufficient for our sin. So what's going on here? What does he he mean talking about a sin that leads to death and a sin that doesn't lead to death? I think the important thing to remember is context. And in this letter, throughout the letter, John has been opposing false teachers. Actually, people who he's called antichrists. People who claim that Jesus is not God in the flesh And that the crucifixion of the son was not necessary. But what's also clear throughout the letter is that these false teachers used to be part of the very church that he's writing to. They claimed to be brothers. They still claimed to be brothers. But as John said in chapter 2 verse 19, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. These false teachers were were apostate. They They had renounced Christ. But they claimed that they weren't apostate. They claimed to be brothers. Having confessed Christ but then denied Christ, rejected Christ. John, here in this verse, I think, holds out no confidence for their forgiveness, no confidence for their eternal life. Not because they've committed the unforgivable sin, but because they have repudiated the only means for forgiveness there is, which is Jesus Christ crucified for us, God in the flesh. On the cross, in the tomb, raised from the dead for our justification. I think that's what's going on here. And so John is is making a clear distinction. We have confidence when we pray for believers who have fallen into sin. Believers fall into sin. Christians don't just fall into like minor sins, like the one I described earlier about me. No, Christians fall into grievous sin. And sometimes they stay there for a long time. But we have confidence. We, we have confidence for believers who've fallen into sin, not because of how small their sin was or even how big their sin was. No, we have confidence for believers who fall into sin because of Jesus, because of Christ. He is our advocate who speaks a better word for us. He is the one whose sacrifice was sufficient for us. And so long as someone, no matter how great their sin is, so long as someone continues to be in Christ, then we can be confident that if that eventually, certainly at the last day, God will give them life. 
But apart from Christ, we have no such confidence. And so for those who actively, consciously deny Christ, for those who have claimed to have known him, but now reject him, who he is and what he did. Well, we may pray for them. John actually doesn't forbid us from paying. He says you don't have to. He doesn't say you can't. He doesn't forbid us from praying. And we may pray for them. But he gives us no confidence that their sins will be forgiven. Because such confidence comes only through Christ. And when Christ is what you have rejected and denied, what other hope is there? There is none. There is only death. Which leads us to John's conclusion. We are confident for ourselves and we are confident for each other because we are confident in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. You notice there, John gives us three strong statements of what we know. We know, we know, we know. He's actually summarizing his three marks, his three tests of genuine Christianity. Verse 18, we know that because we've been born again, we obey. Verse 19, we know that because we've been born again, we have been brought into God's family. We now have a relationship of love, not just with God, but with our brothers and sisters. Verse 20, we know that Jesus is God in the flesh, true God, whose life gives us life, who connects us with God and whose life now flows in and through us. These are the things that we know because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done for us and because of what he's done in us. John says he keeps us safe from the condemnation of sin and Satan. John says that he rescues us from the world. He says that he he brings us into the very life of God itself. This is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus does when you're born again. This is what Jesus does when he gives us life. He, he, he doesn't make you into an unpleasant person. I mean, a lot of people out there think that becoming a Christian means that I've got to become unpleasant. Right. That I've, I've got to all of a sudden become angular and maybe adopt a whole different politics and blah, 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 blah. Right. No, that's not what Jesus does. This is what Jesus does. Not sometimes, not for a special few. But for all who believe in his name. And so when we see evidence of God's life in our lives through through our obedience through, through our faith, through our love for one another, then what we know is that we are in Jesus and Jesus is in us, the true God. And what John says is that leads us, verse 21, to keep ourselves from idols. You see the logic. When we have Jesus, when we have all the life that he brings, then we're no longer looking for substitutes. We don't need counterfeit gods. We, we, we know that, that, that money and sex and success and pleasure and the esteem of others, we know those things don't bring us life because we've found life. We've got life. It's in Jesus. And so we don't need to go looking elsewhere to find it. Christian, here is your confidence. It's Jesus. We are safe in him. He will hold us fast. He will not let us go. We are family in him. No longer slaves to this world, but, but sons and daughters of God. We have eternal life in him. We are vitally connected to the true God. His life is our life. 
It's in Christ that we have these things. And Christ alone. If our confidence was in our good works, if our confidence was in our faith, if our confidence was in our love, then we wouldn't have much reason to be very confident. Because even this last week, all of those things have failed me. Right In this last week, my faith has not been what it should have been. My love for others has not been what it should have been. My obedience has not been what it should have been. No, if my confidence is there, I've got no confidence. But this last week, I did see some faith. Did you see some faith in you this last week? This last week, I did see some love for Christians just because they're Christians. Did you see that in yourself this week? This last week, I did see some obedience. Not all that I wanted, but some. It was really there. Did you find any obedience in your life this week? Well, friends, if you saw it, even a little bit, know that those things were there. Because Christ is in you. They have no other source. They have no other way of happening. Christ at work in you. Christ present in your life. And so when you see that, even in small ways, do you know what happens? My confidence grows. My confidence swells. Not because I did anything special, but because I begin to realize, wait a minute, it looks like Jesus might be in me. It it looks like I might actually be connected to Christ. Oh my goodness. And my confidence grows. Because if I have Christ, then I have God the Father. And if I have God the Father, then his life is in me. And what that produces, what that growing confidence produces in us is more life. Life leading to life. 493 years ago today. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, was condemned by Rome as a heretic at the Diet of Worms. Rome feared that his teaching of assurance of salvation, that you could actually know that you were saved, you could know that you have eternal life. They were afraid that if people actually thought that, 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 that would actually lead to presumption. That, that, that would lead to, to loose living. That would lead to, to toying with sin. That would lead to, to unbelief because it wouldn't matter anymore. If you weren't having to work hard to earn your salvation, you wouldn't try anymore. That's what Rome thought when they condemned Luther. Friends, it's just the opposite. It is just the opposite. Strong confidence in Christ Knowing that I have eternal life in him leads me to bold confession of sin. And bold confession of sin and the repentance that comes from that leads to what? Well, it it leads to renewed obedience. It it leads to to love for one another. It, It leads to greater faith in Jesus Christ and growth in holiness. And John's been saying throughout his whole letter. When you see those things, what's the result? More assurance that I'm actually in Christ. So my assurance has actually grown. And you know what that leads to? It leads to more bold confession of sin. And it leads then to to more growth in grace and more love for others and more faith in Jesus Christ, which leads to more assurance that I'm really in Christ, which leads to more bold confession of sin and more repentance and more faith and more love and more obedience, and the cycle continues. It doesn't lead us away from God. It doesn't lead us into deeper disobedience. The gospel leads us into ever greater life. This is what the cycle of the gospel does in us. This is what knowing that we are loved by the Father in Jesus Christ does for us. It changes us. It cannot help but change us. And friends, this is the normal Christian life. I didn't just describe for you victorious Christian living. I didn't just describe for you the the, the sort of triumphalism that the super spiritual reach. I described for you the dynamic, the cycle of the normal Christian life. Your life 
if you are in Christ Jesus. That's who it starts with. It starts with Jesus. What do you know about Jesus? Well, look at your life. What does your life tell you? Do you see the marks of genuine Christianity in you? Friends, if you do, even in a small measure, they are there because Jesus is true God. And if he is in you, this is what you will see. But Maybe you look at your life today and you think, I don't see it. It's not just that I don't see it as much as I'd like to see it. It's that I don't see it at all. And friend, today is the day. Today is the day to turn away from the false confidence of the world. Today is the day to turn away from the idols that promise life but never deliver. Today is the day to turn to Christ. And in Christ, find life. Find safety. Find love. You can put your confidence in him. Because he is true God. The proof is in the lives of the people around you today. Ask them. Ask them about it. Christian. Jesus is true God. And you are the proof. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray, we pray that we would be people who live lives of bold confidence in Jesus Christ, in the life that you've given us. We pray that we would forsake hiding and pretending. We, we, we pray that we would be bold to confess our sin and so bold to know the grace of Jesus Christ. And the transformation that he brings. And we pray that that transformation in our lives would be evident to all. And that you would use our lives individually and together corporately here in this church. To draw men and women to you. Who are seeking life. And who will find it only in Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.